You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. And Evergen, powering the transition to a resilient, renewable, decentralised energy system of the future. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy and joining me as usual is ITK analyst, director, principal, David Leach. How are you, David? Giles, I'm well, thanks. And uh, I trust all our listeners are as ever well and uh, enjoying discussing the electricity sector. And once again, we've got a, a great guest, uh, uh, Rick Francis, from, from, who's the Chief Executive of Spark. Uh, uh, the thing I should uh, point out to our listeners who may not be aware is that in the end, although we talk about generation and even retailing 90% of the time, when you look at the actual capital invested in the Australian electricity sector, uh, you know, the greatest part of it is in networks and transmission and of the average household bill, 50% of it is actually networks. So it's not necessarily the most interesting sector uh, or most sexy sector, but uh, when you get into it, that's very interesting. Absolutely. And I think that's about as good as leading as we can have. So I'm not going to um, add much more, but um, let's have a listen to Rick Francis from Spark Infrastructure. Rick Francis, uh, Chief Executive of Spark Infrastructure, thanks for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Pleasure, Giles. Uh, well, you, um, as, as a network company, uh, you have interests um, across much of the national electricity market, um, interest, in, interest in South Australia, um, power networks in South Australia, um, two networks in Victoria, and a interest in Transgrid as well, the main transmission operator from um, in New South Wales. I guess and the network- moment, solar farm, sorry, oh. I should add in. No, you're quite... Wait. You're, you're quite right, absolutely. The Bowman Solar we, Farm. We, we don't want to miss that one, Giles. We don't want to miss that one. We're looking forward to talking about that. Um, I, that's actually sort and of half so, answers, Michael. Giles, no, can I just, uh, just just uh, just what you said at the at the outset in terms of being a, a network a network uh, provider? Uh, just 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 to clarify, we and this is our point of difference, I guess. It'll come out later on the in the conversation, but. We, we are we are a long-term investor in networks, energy networks. Um, you know, and David will understand that from his long association with us as well. Uh, but it, but it is quite an important difference. We're, we're we're not the underlying energy company. I know you've had Paul Italiano on, who's CEO of Transgrid before, uh, and and obviously the other two energy networks, SA Power Networks, and then Victoria Power Networks, who are City Power Power Core in Victoria. You know, they're, they're the underlying network service providers. Uh, and, you know, those businesses have their many thousands of employees uh, and are responsible and they have the, you know, the, the orange shirts and they have all of those, uh, you know, very good folk running around maintaining the networks. But Spark itself um, is, is the listed uh, investment vehicle that sits above those, above those businesses. Um, and, you know, we, we position ourselves as being an investor uh, in those particular businesses. The, the, the nuance and the difference that I know that you've spoken about before is, is our recent foray into renewable generation with the Bowman Solar Farm, which obviously we own 100% on. But I, but I just wanted to clarify that at the outset. 
I think that's a really important clarification, actually, because I don't think I fully appreciated that. David probably did. But look, given that you are um, now clarified as an investor in networks, what is the attraction of being an investor in networks in the middle of an energy transition? Uh, that's that's a very very good question. I mean, we we have been in this spot as a as an investor in energy networks uh, for the full life cycle of Spark. So the 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 distribution businesses, which are the businesses in South Australia, Victoria, as you probably know, they've been privatised since the early early to mid nineties. Uh, they were ultimately seeded into a new vehicle called Spark Infrastructure in 2005, and we were listed um, uh, in December 2005. So Spark's been around for 15 years. It's always had that or those investments. Uh, and we expanded the, um, the investment portfolio uh, in December 15 when we acquired the stake in the transgrid investment. So we, we've we've always been in this space. It was a, a vehicle set up uh, to invest in effectively regulated or long-term uh, infrastructure assets, um, monopoly-based assets, um, and uh, the 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 investors that we that we sought to um, be attractive to are ones that were looking for. You know, a very solid investment that can weather all sorts of storms going forward, um, but also appreciated a reasonably reliable and consistent sort of dividend stream coming out of the businesses. Um, but what what we've seen going forward is 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 obviously moving into that energy transition. Spark looking to 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 reposition itself, continuing with those really solid core investments but then being very excited about the opportunities in that energy transition uh, and taking a position where also being involved leading the transition, which obviously is um, where, where the investment in the, um, in the solar farm fits in, but also very much looking to grow uh, the energy networks themselves to actually support and facilitate the transition of, men, of many others. Obviously, as the you know the very large scale uh, coal-fired generation retires from around the country and is replaced by uh, many far and far and uh, geographically dispersed renewable generation. So, Rick, uh, it, uh, and I hope Giles won't mind if I uh, cut in a little. Uh, I think investors have seen a reasonably constant share price for the last five years, or even a little longer and they've uh, happily taken a yield, which is about 6.5% dividend yield, which looks pretty good relative to the interest rates at the moment. Um, Spark, as you mentioned, sits on top of the underlying investments, and so it doesn't uh, consolidate them. It, it takes essentially distributions from those two investments, but that doesn't, and then it pays them out out pretty much straight away to its investors. So it doesn't leave a lot of cash historically that's been left over. Now I see, and, and I want to come back to both parts of what you said, but now I see that uh, Spark, and as you mentioned, has a focus on um, putting some new investments together. I won't call it a growth, a growth, it is a growth strategy, and that's going to require more funding. If I think on your 
presentation, you talk about the equivalent of one new solar farm every year or is sort of in the forward planning sort of thing, a couple of hundred million dollars. Um, and I think, you, have you taken out a corporate debt facility? To, how, how do you think investors, I guess, will you be able to fund that without raising more equity? And your investors who are very conservative by nature, are they going to be happy with this um, uh, more ambitious plan? Uh, yeah, great, great question, David. Very long. Um, lots of different parts to that. Um, the, I guess, I mean, and you will have seen this, but uh, I guess the cycle of these assets, uh, energy, energy assets, energy network assets, um, you know, there are there are quite significant um, cycles, um, you know, much longer than just an annual cycle, uh, that really, uh, that really drives the growth phase. Um, and you know, Spark as the, as the investor sitting over the top also then reflects those cycles. So, the cycles that I'm I'm talking about, you just alluded to, is that uh, we've been through a period where the majority of our return has probably come from yield, and that's been seen as very attractive. But now we're coming into a cycle where there is more growth apparent in front of the businesses, obviously coming out of the energy transition. But if I look back, uh, you know, ten years, we we went through an equivalent equivalent cycle um, in the first five years of our life, from sort of two thousand and five to two thousand and ten. We were we were again pretty much all about yield. Uh, but then what we saw in the two thousand and ten to fifteen period was a was again a doubling of our capital expenditure within the businesses, which were the South Australian Victorian businesses at the time, um, and we had to reposition our return to being a blend of that growth and yield. Um, so at that time, we, we reduced our distribution. We, we had some corporate debt uh, and um, uh, we did some refinancing. It's a bit of recapitalization. Uh, and then we, and then we um, uh, presented that to the market and explained what was going on. You might remember at the time, uh, David, that, uh, that that coincided uh, with the rollout of the smart meter um, uh, program in in Victoria, which was a very substantial capital program. I do recall that. So, yeah, and and so we we went through the same the same challenges with our investors at that time, explaining that yes, I were going to get a little bit uh, less cash yield up front, but uh, there was very substantial growth coming through in the asset base. Um, and and you know we're, we we are you know really encountering the same the same challenge uh, again. Uh, we've been through again a period where the yield has been uh, very attractive to to many of our investors, um, and now we are seeing a very substantial opportunity to grow the businesses. Uh, growth, but growth in the in the core, absolutely the core distribution networks, more modest growth, uh, but quite substantially, um, as as you've spoken about on many on many occasions very substantial growth in the transmission space. So there's there's lots of moving parts, as, as you know, in terms of how networks need to evolve to support the the transition from coal-fired to renewable generation. Uh, so, Rick, the first Rick, major, uh, uh, yep, yep. No, I was just going to say, say the first uh, major, uh, yep. The first major? Oh, well, I was just going to say the first major cab off the rank really is in relation to uh, Transgrid and transmission and Project Energy Connect, the interconnector, which um, you know I'm sure you'll get onto in a minute. 
Uh, we will, and I want to uh, hand back to Giles in a second, but I just want to ask one more question because, and, and I, I want to say I think that uh, in, the more I think about it, the more I think that a network investor is a natural owner of wind and solar farms because the uh, 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 cost of capital is probably quite similar in both businesses, very low, if provided you've got revenue certainty. But uh, leaving that aside, um, and leaving lots of space for Giles, just, let me ask about the network businesses. If I take PowerCore as an, as an example, the amount of energy going through that network at the moment is about exactly the same or as 1% as higher than it was 15 years ago when you, when you first bought the business. Uh, and yet the number of customers has gone up 30%. Uh, and, and the regulated asset base has gone up by a lot more than that, uh, naturally enough. Uh, at the same time, the and I apologise for the complexity and length of the question, that the Australian energy regulator who determines your monopoly return doesn't really want to allow any capex for transformation, you know, for investment into, I don't know, um, um, uh, 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 grid-forming inverters, microgrids, uh, two-way sharing of the revenue, peer-to-peer, uh, -peer, all of this sort of stuff that, that we all talk about all day long doesn't seem to show up in your business and it's very hard to get anything through from the AER. I just wondered how you thought about that from the longer term. Yeah, a, a, a few points there, I guess. I think, look, in the first instance, um, what what really drives our business in terms of, um, you know, CapEx and, you know, operational expenditures uh, you know, population growth at the end of the day is one of the key drivers of the expansion of the networks and the need to augment and, you know, infill in developments and so on and so forth. Um, a, a lesser impact to a certain extent in terms of volumes because uh, it's, it's about, you know, expanding the reach um, of the networks and we're, we're talking more, more predominantly about distribution networks in this particular case. Uh, so, you know, connecting up as um, connecting up new suburbs and developments and, and so on and so forth as the population sprawl, you know, occurs in the various um, you know, population centres. That, that's what drives a lot of the fundamental, you know, asset base uh, of, of these vehicles. And I mean, it is, it is very interesting, um, uh, you know, what, what that means is the cost of the networks is really quite fixed. Um, you know the operating side of the business. Um, you know is pretty is pretty stable. There's obviously storms and you know those types of weather events that uh, that uh, you you know you see on the front page of the paper and in the TV reports and so on. And they're and they're you know those type those types of things are quite costly. But at the end of the day, the the fixed cost basis proportion, if you like. Um, you know, it, it, to pick a number, it's probably say sort of 90 percent of, of of the business cost. But you actually compare that to how our uh, how the tariff works through the regulatory regime, um, and and it's it's really the other way around. Um, you know, if you go and look at your electricity bill, uh, the the fixed proportion, uh, the supply charge is actually a reasonably reasonably minor amount. And you know we're we're seeing this in the in the transformation of, of how consumers engage in the networks and and uh, and obviously with our with our networks, they they are using um, obviously uh, energy produced off their roof uh, within the house, 
and they're either then drawing on the network for uh, when there's a there's surplus surplus demand within the within the uh, within the home, or where there's excess demand, they're looking to export it back to the network. So it's a different way that the consumers are engaging and using their electricity. And really, what what that ultimately needs to flow down to is a is a different way of reallocating the cost pie um, amongst amongst users. At the end of the day, it's not going to drive our revenues up or down, but it's a it's a it's heading towards a more fairer um, allocation of the costs and sending the right um, you know the, the more appropriate economic signals. I, I might just stop there for a minute, if you want to pursue that at all, David or Giles. Now you go, David. Uh, you know, in my idea, Rick, I think uh, in my, which no one, uh, I, I would argue that the cost of a connection should be built into the price of the house and that after that, uh, the actual usage charges should be whether you're, uh, exp- uh, whether it's ingoing or outgoing from the house uh, would be next to nothing because it would only cover your operating costs. But because I agree with you that the vast uh, amount of uh, return that a network gets is, is, is fixed. But I'm just interested also in how um, within the networks we can provide this scope um, um, to 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 change even the control system. You know, like uh, if I think about community batteries, they're ring fenced out of out of networks, uh, for instance. Uh, and it's not easy to find a model that, that satisfies everyone. Um, how are you thinking about those sort of the technical change and how it's going to impact the business? Yeah, well, what if I, and if I if I follow that that path and also you know the back end of your other question, um, I mean the the networks are at the are, are directly facing the investors in terms of the way that they're changing their their generation and consumption patterns and the way that they're looking to to change that interaction with the networks. Um, it's the and and. And the networks are, are, you know, working very closely with consumers and trying to adapt, you know, real time. Um, but as as you're you're leading to is that the, the regulatory models uh, and the scope of the services need to change on a more, um, you know, on a more immediate, uh, um, you know, basis. So they are the network companies are are constrained uh, in terms of what they can do. I, I I agree with you entirely in terms of. A number of these new technologies, um, you know, are better are better, um, you know, planned as, as if they're part of the the overall uh, you know grid. So in terms of managing, um, you know, the frequency, voltage, uh, etc. across across the grids, that that responsibility lies better with the uh, with with the network companies that perhaps have the, have the best field visibility across the networks. Um, it's the, the, that that regulatory, um, you know, model, if you like, in terms of the operational side, um, is is struggling to keep pace with uh, with the transition that that's that's going on. Now it's a, it's it's a challenging environment. We are we are starting to get there. Um, you'd be aware that there was a change in relation to standalone power systems, which enabled networks to to inter- start to integrate that into their asset base, and there are other moves. Uh, underway to potentially allow network companies to more freely integrate batteries. Uh, 
but they you know those those changes they take a while to to, to really flow through and the pace of change um, is quite rapid in those areas as, as you know I guess what we're leading to here is that the network's creeping into a part of the um, the utility business or the energy business that the generators and the retailers might have hoped to keep for themselves. And um, it's a fairly interesting dynamic, isn't it? I mean, I think uh, going back to 2014, 2015, I think I dug out this, the, the quote from Ron Stobby, the head of uh, SA Power Networks, and he just sort of said, well, in the long term, there's probably no future for the gen tailors as, as they exist now. And I guess the gen tailors who combine generation retail sit, sit nicely on one side and the networks have sat on the other side. Now that we've got all these new technologies, we've got rooftop solar, we've got virtual power plants, we've got smart software, we've going to have EVs and battery storage and community batteries. The lines have to get blurred, don't they? And how is that going to happen? And um, what does the future look like? Um, the networks, I presume, say that they're looking okay because they're the delivery man, they're the they're the they're the infrastructure provider. Um, and I guess that the gentilers might think that they're sort of hopeful, but. I guess they don't, they might have to change their spots more than the networks have to change their spots. Maybe that might be a bit provocative if I answer that question directly, but uh, well, certainly, what, uh, you know, Rob's, Rob, Rob, <laughs> certainly what Rob Stavey was indicating, and uh, I mean, all you need to look at is the, is the rise of uh, the prosumers, which, uh, you know, you'd be very aware of, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, Consumers, they're generating on their roof, they're using it and they're importing and they're exporting. So, um, you know, that, that has been a, a classic function of the, of the gen tailor. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're not first, first in line to be, uh, you know, attacking that business's mo business model at all because obviously, you know, the, uh, the actual consumers themselves are, are, are going down that path. But at the end of the day, uh, we or these networks... Um, you know that that we own uh, are regulated monopolies, and and effectively what they are doing is they're they're trying to provide the most efficient platform uh, upon which all of this trading can occur. So it's it's ensuring that that platform uh, can adapt to best facilitate uh, those those two way flows, as we just sort of loosely refer to them as, um, you know, most efficiently as possible. It's not, it's not uh, necessarily trying to grab a greater share of the revenue pie because at the end of the day, these networks, um, you know, they're a monopoly uh, and, you know, the returns and hence the revenues, et cetera, uh, are ultimately determined by, by the regulator. So, you know, in, in, in a way you can, you can say that we're sort of indifferent to what's going on as long as we're not impeded from providing the most efficient level of services that we can to the to to consumers mm. but i'd make a quick comment in passing uh that uh, at least you guys are still going for a lot of capex despite the fact that it's more difficult to appeal to the competition tribunal and and, and giles will tread on my toe afterwards for stealing another question so quickly but could i just talk about transmission for a second um transgrid's got you know these uh billions i think of something over nearly 10 billion or more of uh, potential investment opportunities, you only own 15%. Most of it will come from debt funding. But um, then you've also got the state government uh, trying to um, facilitate transmission investment uh, and new ways of funding transmission. You've got the federal government. Can I ask, uh, how do you... I, my question is, I suppose, the easiest question to ask is, 
how do you plan to work with the federal and state governments in relation to any funding that they may provide? Is there a model for that coming forward yet? Uh, yeah, that look, that's a that's a fascinating question. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, the various network owners tend to have very supportive investors, uh, and in in terms of you know needing capital, um, you know. We don't we don't necessarily need the capital. What what we need is we need a clear uh, and certain environment, investment environment, regulatory environment for which for for which we can then make our long term decisions on. I mean, as as we sit here uh, looking at the various business cases um, uh, that that we're seeing at Transgrid, and 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 the first obvious in investment decision is around Project Energy Connect. Um, you know, we we're, we're looking for uh, you know that that particular investment is is now, as you know, it's a one point nine billion dollar investment from Transgrid's perspective. It's a fifty year asset, so we're we're looking beyond many um, you know regulatory cycles. Regulatory cycles five years, so we're looking at um, uh, we're we're looking at what provides that that level of certainty around around the investment. And that's that's really what we're looking for from 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 governments. Um, I mean, I, I don't want to go too far back in in history, but um, you know, from a, from about mid mid two thousand and seventeen, uh, I, I guess the the government and the policy setters have gone down a particular path, as as you've sort of inferred in terms of trying to cut down on spending by by network companies, um, and you know they they have made many changes uh, in terms of um, the investment attractiveness of of these investments, um, and that was all on the premise that uh, the network companies had overspent. Uh, there was excess capacity, and really there was minimal requirement of spending um, in in networks required. Now, obviously, roll forward to today, and that's vastly different. Uh, and now. Uh, we're we're being asked to put our hand in hand in our pocket to to potentially spend many billions of dollars to you know, augment expand uh, the the transmission in, uh, network um, in the first instance. So we're really what we're dealing with. We're not we're not saying we need we need money because um, we don't. But what we what we're saying is we we need to restore some of the credibility. Um, and certainty in in the regulatory in investment systems, such that we can make those decisions with confidence and ensure that ultimately, um, you know, we are we are pricing an efficient cost of capital, which means uh, you know lower, more efficient costs for for consumers. And that and that's where that's where we're getting to now. And you'll have seen um, a number of reviews that are going on in terms of uh, you know cost of capital and uh, the rate of the, um, the 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 inflation re um, review and so on that uh, that that have um, you know that are issues that have that have popped up um, and and um, I guess that have uh, uh, become more pronounced in in our um, COVID uh, environment. I'm just wondering if we can go back to the previous subject and the friction between sort of networks and sort of gen generators and retailers and what have you. And it's interesting to see um, we'll get, get onto um, investments in solar projects quite soon. But 
I'm just wondering, if you look overseas, you see a lot of networks who um, the regulatory structure or the, the structure of the industry is that the network owners are also the retailers and the generators are, are, are quite separate. And so the networks are able to find um, efficiencies in dealing face-to-face with the consumer, but that's not allowed in Australia, although there are efforts to get you know, ring-fencing exemptions and things like that so they can actually try and test these technologies. Has Australia got its structure wrong in, in, in those terms? Is it going to be harder for us to to transition with this rigid structure that sort of you know paints this black line down the middle? Uh, look, I guess that's uh, it's that certainly is one of one of the challenges with such a um, you know segregated supply chain, if you like, in 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 electricity. Um, and therefore, there's lots of competing interests and and, and so on and so forth. Um, Certainly, the network companies, um, you know, are working very closely uh, with with retailers, with consumers, with governments, trying to break through those barriers to ensure that they don't they don't stand in the way of uh, of, of innovation and new technologies. Um, and uh, you you may well have seen in South Australia, for example, that SA Power Networks have been very heavily involved with the government. Uh, in trial running um, VPPs, virtual virtual power plants, using mm. using you know many many um, you know many batteries in 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 um, in, in individual homes. Um, so yes, you are you are sort of. I mean, there's a lot of goodwill in this industry at the end of the day, and we do want to work together to deliver the right the right outcomes. Um, so we we do we do try and cut through that that where possible. Do we have the right structure? Um, Look, I guess time time will tell. Um, you know, there's a lot of other change going on. We've almost had too much change, and it's very hard for things to settle down just to see see how it's actually going to to um, to work out in practice. Mm. Uh, and that, and that is that is one of the challenges. And I mean, we've we've seen so many sort of innovations and um, incentives and subsidies being rolled out by various state governments, uh, with without with unfortunately without necessarily. Uh, thinking about the the core skeleton being the grid, which can bring it all together and hold it all together. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're, we've now moved forward quite substantially, and and um, you know the 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 major report obviously came out of Finkel, but um, was really the development of the integrated system plan by by AEMO, and I think, I mean obviously that's now in its second draft, um, ISB twenty twenty, and it look it's a it's a very comprehensive document, and and it's a really important plan for the industry. Focuses focus on many many aspects, but certainly a lot of the short term things that pop out of it are around transmission infrastructure. Mm. Uh, but that's we we've needed that plan for 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 quite some time. Can we talk maybe now about um, the Bowman Solar Farm? We've mentioned it a couple of times. So tell us, you, you've built this, um, you now own a 100 megawatt solar farm, which you built, I think it was built um, by one of um, your subsidiary companies, Beyond um, Energy Solutions. Tell us a bit more about the attraction of solar and your further future plans here. I mean, one can imagine that um, that um, that Transgrid, for instance, um, would be heavily involved in building renewable energy zones. I mean, I guess you could almost sort of imagine a, a situation where you're providing the, both a transmission and a sizable part of the generation that, that might be found there. Uh, as long as you manage the appropriate conflicts, um, yeah, yeah, that's probably right. <laughs> I mean, we, we're, you're always, you're always looking to, um, you know, grow, grow the business and grow it, grow it into into areas that are, um, you know, close to your your strategic fairway, if you like. 
and so therefore, you know, we we saw we saw an opportunity uh, to to expand in 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 what you would, I'd loosely call a, a, I guess an adjacency, an adjacent asset. You know, it fits on the end of the transmission grid, so to speak. Um, uh, and you know, we were very comfortable with that, as you said. Beyond um, part of our Victorian business, constructed the asset. They've done a great job. Uh, we we know the market well. Renewable generation is um, is obviously about a good resource, but also as we've seen, it's uh, it's it's location, and, and um, you know we're very careful. Bowman itself, as you probably know, is is 10k north of uh, Wagga Wagga. Um, you know the central part of the grid. Great resource, um, uh, and you know in that regard, it's it's uh, it's gone reasonably smoothly uh, through its connection and testing processes. But so it's a, it's a it's a an asset type that we're very comfortable with. We've designed it such that um, the characteristics are uh, are only a, a small step away from regulated networks. Obviously, we're focusing on contracted revenue flows coming from from the solar farm. Um, but yeah, look a look a, a a great asset and a logical a logical step out uh, for us. Um, and people have been very keen to talk about that, um, uh, and and how what our plans are. And we've we've provided a bit more guidance uh, now that we've got Bowman up and running, and we've demonstrated that we can actually uh, build, connect, and get get these assets up and running, you know, very very efficiently. Uh, so we've been providing that providing that sort of level of gu- level of um, mm. uh, guidance to the market more more recently. Can, can you just? D- d- so can, oh, just oh, sorry, I'm just, just going to sneak one more in before I hand you back to David. So David talked about the cost of capital before. Um, you know your big infrastructure company with regulated assets. Does that mean that the cost of solar um, farms such as these is less for you, and you actually have a competitive advantage? Um, I mean, can you give any sort of a guidance about what sort of you know levelized cost of energy that um, you can talk about for for Bowman Solar Farm and other wind and solar assets that you're looking at? Uh, we. We there, there there are many other players out there uh, that'll have a lower cost of capital than Spark. Um, so let me let me let me just say that. So, I mean, when we look at these assets, uh, you know, we're very careful about you know asset selection and and um, you know how we, how we see if it comes down to a cost of capital shootout, um, you know, we won't be successful. You know, we we bring we bring a number of other you know really strong attributes. Um, you know, to the to the table. I mean, obviously, we have an incredibly good understanding of the market. Uh, you know, we bring we bring an in-house construction capability in the form of Beyond to the table, uh, and they they are, um, you know, over the last uh, you know year or a couple of years, demonstrated that they're they're the leading or one of the leading EPC parties uh, partners uh, in in the country. Um, I mean. Just, just in terms of um, you know our own credibility, ASX listed company and a four billion dollar company, um, that that's the type of party that when 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 you get involved, when we get involved, people look at it and go, okay, I have a I have a very high degree of confidence that that project is going to get up and built uh, and is going to be you know run and operated. Um, if you there are many many opportunities around the place that will never come to fruition. But they know, and I'm talking about, 
you know, PPA counterparties here. We've got Westpac and Flowpower in Bowman. And they, they looked at uh, that asset, they looked at the owner, they looked at Spark and said, look, we, we want to be party, uh, you know, partner to that, uh, to that deal because we know it's going to get up. We know it's going to be a great quality asset. And, and uh, you know, we've, we've demonstrated that. Yeah, I, and I think you, uh, you're asking your investors to take tail risk uh, because none of these PPAs cover 100% of revenues in the way they do for regulated assets. So the cost of capital has to be higher. Um, from where I sit uh, a little bit. Uh, but I wanted to come back to the transmission to, uh, <laughs> again and talk about this. Uh, I mean, we've seen the best part of a year's delay between when Energy Connect got its RIT and it's still, although you're hopeful of starting by the end of the year, you've had to ask for a, a modification of the normal regulated revenue. So I'm still trying to understand what the federal and state governments, if they don't give you money, to get this transmission built earlier, what can they do? Can they guarantee that if it doesn't pass an RIT test or its equivalent or the AER cuts down on its budgeted revenue that they'll make up the shortfall? They can kind of guarantee your 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 return, frankly, or your cost of capital? I mean, how would you like them to be involved? Yeah, again, David, great, great question. Um, so there, there's been a Look, I'd, I'd say there's a bit of confusion and I fully understand that in the market in terms of, you know, when a writ T is signed off, many people then jump to the conclusion that, right, bang, that's done. Um, you know, construction will be starting in a few months' time. Well, that's that, that's far from the case. It's a very convoluted approval process. Um, and, you know, that the, the Energy Connect obviously went through that initial assessment um, and you know the the next stage of that process was to um, uh, you know get cl greater clarity around the cost of the project, um, and that is then provided at the appropriate time to the regulator via what's called a contingent project application. Now that that in its first genesis was provided to the AAR um, on the 29th of June, which is technically actually under the old process, just out of just the nuance there. Um, and then more recently, we've we've um, completed the tendering process, gone through best and final, um, and as you've probably seen, we've now actually allocated a, a, a contract. And what that means is that we've um, we've actually slimmed down the cost because we've locked in a locked in an EPC partner, uh, and you know we have we've we've now actually got a contract which uh, which confirms the build. Um, so that that is a a, 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 you know, a long process, um, but what we've managed to do, what Transgrid has managed to do, whilst it's been navigating uh, through the regulatory process, is keep the work going in the background. Now, normally, uh, you know, the way these things work is that uh, Transgrid, in this case, would would not have started any of the work. They would go through the process, they put in their cost estimates, and they get it approved at the appropriate time by the regulator, and then they'd start. Now, if we went down that path, um, you know, we wouldn't be starting for another year or two. So what, what, what government support that we've had, and in this particular case, it's principally come from the South Australian government, um, is that they've been able to guarantee to keep Transgrid whole that if, if the regulator doesn't approve uh, the um, Air Project Energy Connect, 
then um, we'll, we'll be kept whole. And, I, and you know, this, this is not just a couple hundred thousand dollars. This is many millions of dollars to, to go through these processes and to start the preparations, go through all the planning processes, start to our equipment and so on and so forth. So we're, we're, we're talking about, you know, reasonably large licks of money in the tens and tens of millions of dollars uh, that, that is at risk until such time as um, the regulator signs off. So we've been able to run, navigate this process, run, run this process in parallel, keep, keep the, the, pro, the, the process in a, in, a, in a construction sense moving along while we're trying to navigate you know, a pretty clunky, not fit for purpose regulatory model. What we've found and, 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 more... And so, yeah, so, so, so Rick, so yep. just to go on with that, uh, uh, you, know, yep. you, you come up to HumeLink and to VNI West and they're $2 billion each. Is that, is that the, the right way for the Victorian and New South Wales governments to do it, to sort of say, well, you get, uh, guys get on with it and we'll let the regulatory process run, but, but we'll make you whole if, if you don't get through it? Well, the, the, the regulatory process has changed from 1 July. Uh, new rules were being drafted at the time about making the ISP uh, actionable. Uh, and so it's trying to address a number of those a, a number of those issues. But the nuance, as I said, was that uh, Energy Connect um, is, is started prior to these new rules coming in um, and still technically will be assessed under the old rule environment. The new rules will start to address because it's broken up into phases to to ensure that um, uh, that that uh, that type of risk um, is 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 more bite sized and manageable through the process. But if I if I just go back to uh, the other aspect, um, so uh, Transgrid put in put in the other day an update to their uh, CPA as I as I said, um, but they've also gone down the path and identified that we need a rule change around indexation of the RABs. Now, you, you, you will well and truly understand the indexation of RABs um, in, in the industry. But what that actually means for a very large construction project, uh, that, that does mean that, in effect, revenues are deferred under the indexing for many, many years. Uh, and those revenues take a very substantial time to, to build up. Now, it, it, um, it's less of an issue when you have an existing, um, you know, uh, business as usual uh, regulated asset base, RAB, for the businesses. But when you're looking at a bespoke $2 billion investment, it, it has to be looked at in isolation. Uh, and what's really been identified um, as a result, if you're trying to use this, this old model with, with a $2 billion construction project, is that it, it's, it won't actually generate revenues that will support the regulatory assumptions around a credit rating for this particular project and, and meet the credit metrics. Uh, so it's um, in, in brackets, the phrase we use it, it's, it's not debt financeable. Um, and so the, the regulator, as you know, doesn't make the rules. It only arbitrates on the rules. Uh, they looked at the issue and then they've, and then they've turned around and said, look, uh, we understand your issue. Uh, we, we, we support that you need to resolve it. Uh, but they've referred it on to the AEMC, uh, who 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 will um, uh, meet and determine um, uh, whether there's a whether whether there is a rule change required. So we're going through, as I sort of said, the, you know, we've got these large projects, and we're encountering you know issue after issue that we're trying to navigate through. You know, once once the and and the rule change uh, that that's gone in 
um, is 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 bespoke, obviously for Transgrid, but it's also uh, uh, been formulated on the basis that it will apply to HumeLink as well. We should probably wrap up there, Rick. Um, but I do want to ask one more question. Um, some of the issues facing you and other network um, um, investors seems to be much regulatory as as as. Um, technology, but I do want to ask one question about technology. We hear from battery storage providers about the sort of the prospect of virtual transmission, the ability to use batteries to upgrade the capacity and the flows between between links. And I even heard the other day about um, wireless transmission. Um, you know, we don't supposedly don't even need poles and wires at all. When, do you get excited about such developments, or do you look at your poles and wires and think, oh, bugger? <laughs> No, I don't think bugger. I think uh, they'll be in place for a long time, as far as I can see. Um, uh, no, we we get very excited about innovation, um, and uh, you know we're trying to integrate the, that into the networks. Uh, look, if we if we don't innovate, then then you know theoretically we could be we could be bypassed. But I actually think, you know, like uh, like I know David has the same view, is that um, you know a lot of this innovation should be part of the the actual grid grid itself, the grid technology itself, um, you know, the networks are the ones that have uh, most of the visibility of what's going on down at the street level. Um, and so they generally, or they should be, and they, they, they will be, um, you know, best paced to see, to see what's going on. So, um, you know, there are concepts uh, such as distribution system operator that are being explored such that, um, you know, the, the distribution entities can, can do that most efficiently for um, uh, for consumers because at the end of the day the consumer doesn't want to have to invest in in all of their own technology because uh, it's not just about putting you know a, a um, you know rooftop solar on you know, because what happens when it's cloudy you know you've got to go to something else you've got to go to a battery uh, you've got to rely on the battery what happens then that breaks down you you there you therefore will want a second and third line of support and that's ultimately where where also you will be um, calling on the network to provide you with that level. Otherwise, you're going to have three different batteries or you're going to have, um, you know, diesel generation or whatever. And, and you know, that, that ultimately is just, um, you know, just, it just um, you know, expanding, obviously, your capital cost such that it's become more than, more than inefficient. So we we, yeah, I, we, we I, will I, get there. I, yeah. Sorry, David. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I think you can strongly agree that there's the benefit in the network. I think you know standalone if you have to, but most people don't want. We are we are running out of time. It's been a very long uh, discussion, Rick. One we're very grateful. But I just quickly, just in five seconds, do you, do you see that the approval process uh, or the total time taken will be uh, quicker with the for transmission builds for Hume Link and and. Uh, and and VNI West if, um, with under the ISP because it still seems to be taking incredibly long time and it's a major bottleneck. Uh, yeah, look, we're we're going through it. Um, Transcript specifically is is going through it for the first time, and we you know we are working through issues for the first time. Um, so look, I you know think things will things will settle down. Um, but I you know I would say that there's there's good there's good faith. Um, you know, with the regulator and the AEMC to, to get these things resolved. The, the, the governments, both state um, and principally that's South Australia and, and, and New South Wales from our perspective, but also federal, you know, there is, there is great support to get, to get these projects rolled out and as soon as possible. So, you know, there's, there's 
you know, there's the right intentions. It's just that we're dealing with very thorny issues. And, there's, and as you know, there's been no major transmission investment for, you know, over 20 odd years. So it, it is um, it is sort of pioneering stuff dealing with a uh, with with a clunky with a clunky regulatory environment that needs to be um, you know brought up to speed with with the new technologies and and the way forward. Great stuff, look, Rick Francis. Thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Pleasure, Giles. Pleasure, David. And that was Rick Francis, CEO of Spark Infrastructure. Um, David. Um, Look, it's um, it's an interesting thing. It's 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 going to be fascinating to see how the evolution of the industry goes. I mean, we've we've seen in this last week. I think we made a brief mention of it in the interview with um, with Rick uh, Community Batteries, which we've discussed in some detail. Um, has happened in Western Australia with Western Power and for very good reasons and quite an interesting innovation. Now we see Ausgrid and United Energy both going into different forms of community batteries. Um, I just don't think you're going to keep the networks away from the people. What with more batteries, community batteries and electric vehicles and other things happening. It's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. No, at, at the household level, the, uh, the, the networks are the closest to the customer physically, electrically and uh, you know, one of my great themes uh, is the decentralization that I think is going to happen in the whole control system. And really, the networks are going to be in the forefront of it all. And it does seem to me that community batteries must offer savings over putting a battery in every house and efficiency. It's just a matter of making sure that everyone benefits from that, because we all know in our own households that we like to have control. Yes, and that's an interesting one in itself, and probably worthy, worthy of a um, of, of a podcast about um, how that works with um, virtual um, virtual power plants and, and things like that. So people don't necessarily have as much control over the battery as they would like. But um, it's interesting. What did you make of the Ausgrid um, and the United Energy announcements? Well, uh, the Ausgrid start uh, the United. One of the things is when you go back and look at the uh, feasibility study that uh, Osgrid uh, uh, produced a few months ago now, earlier this year, it was the cost of the batteries. They are still showing essentially for a 500 kilowatt battery, so about uh, 50 times, say, the size of a Tesla Powerwall, that the, essentially the cost, installed cost, according to co the accountants that worked on it, was about the same. That is $1,000 a kilowatt hour, $1,000 a kilowatt, which is it's just high. When you get up to uh, utility scale batteries of say the, the 10 and 20, 30, up to 100 megawatts, the, the cost per kilowatt hour halves. So I, I just think, um, and, and, and uh, as a result of that, you, the case for community batteries doesn't look as good <laughs> as it would as if the batteries were cheaper and it doesn't look as good. I can't understand why a household battery costs has the same installed cost uh, as a community battery when, when you've got all these extra installations to do, et cetera, et cetera. So more work to be done by me. Mm, well, and possibly by the uh, battery storage developers. Look, just a quick wraparound of the other news. Um, I, I did want to make reference to the podcast we had um, last week in the interview with Audrey Zugman, which uh, was a fantastic interview. One of the things that was raised in that was her reference to this uh, Global Power Consortium. And um, she was just talking about how she sort of, um, you know, gets together and she talks to the CEOs of some of the other grid operators in California, Denmark, Ireland, um, Texas, and um, and Germany. And 
they've all gotten together and, and really their, their ambition and the purpose of their new consortium is actually quite sort of fascinating. It's looking for a 50% reduction in um, all emissions by 2030, seeking to unlock $10 trillion of investment. And it really is quite a, um, an active um, role by the, uh, the heads of all these um, uh, system operators to accelerate the transition towards renewables, um, which I think is probably... Um, very worth noting, and um, please do listen to that podcast um, um, if you did miss it. Um, David, um, the transition is being that that consortium thing has been kicked off by AEMO. Um, elsewhere, though, in Australia, we we we, we see not quite such an enthusiastic embrace and um, we saw the snowy hydro profit result come out this week. The annual report. It's the government-owned. Um, uh, generator utility, um, a, a fall in profits, which we would have expected to see given the uh, wholesale prices over the last year, but some fascinating movements in their board. Um, it seems to be all about gas. Yes, uh, so it seems. And, and I uh, agree with you about uh, the good thing AEMO doing in putting together that international consortium. Uh, I think there's a lot of lessons Australia could already have learnt if we'd uh, taken in the um, say the text and transmission experience a lot earlier and Ireland was the first with the battery and I think the work in Germany on on looking at how to deal with less inertia, less physical inertia is probably uh, um, a, a long way advanced as well. So and the sharing of all and yet and Australia is a leader in, in distributed energy so there's fantastic knowledge sharing and uh, it, you know it's great to be part of the global village in that sense. Look as far as snowy goes uh, it's hard not to see what Paul Broad says, quite frankly, with a slightly uh, um, jaundiced eye. Um, you've got David Knox, uh, who is the ex-CEO of Santos, uh, an out-and-out gas company. Uh, and, you know, I don't think it's overly harsh to say that his time at Santos wasn't the most successful time for the company in terms of its share price. I think that's an actual fact. And he's now the chairman of Snowy. Uh, you've got Karen Moses, uh, who's the ex-CFO uh, and, uh, uh, and commercial manager of Origin and has a huge background in gas all her career. She's also on the Snowy board. You, you don't see uh, uh, any anyone with any real renewable energy experience on the Snowy board. It's the old school. And we look around the place, we see Grant King, another Origin person, working on the advice to Taylor about, about uh, you know, the recovery investments and the gas-led recovery. We see Nev Powell, another gas person. I mean, <laughs> the coal guys have been squeezed out. The next thing we'll be seeing, these gas people appointed to be advisors to the Prime Minister, you know, and the equivalent of the Minerals Council, the Gas Council or whatever it is, uh, you know, is assuming the throne. Hello? Oh, there you go. It's the old mute, mute button again. Um, yes, no, David, no. Look, um, I, I think most of the Mineral Council are already inside the Prime Minister's office, the former Chief Executive and the former Deputy Chief Executive, and there's inner core. And look, as you said, um, Origin and, and Santos, um, both those executives came at a time when they made these huge investments into um, LNG um, and also managed to um, make um, big write-downs at, um, at a later time. So um, a lot of people would expect um, to see the same thing possibly with the Snowy Hydra. Snowy 2.0 investment, but um, I guess we'll wait and see. Um, David, um, 
Well, it's going to, and it's going to be fascinating too. Just, I mean, they're still talking about building more gas plants at, at, at Snowy and and, and well, that's the point. If you put a gas people in there, they start talking about building gas plants. Uh, you know, and, and next thing we'll be going downstream in gas, and they'll be owning gas pipelines, and it's only a short step from there to owning an LNG plant. Uh, I can see it from Snowy right now. <laughs> Might have to think about a change in name in that case, um, David. Look, I think we should wind it up there because I think the podcast has been long enough, and people must get around their business. Um, I do want to thank our uh, sponsors, um, Evergen and Pylon. Uh, thank you for your ongoing support, and I want to thank all of our listeners for um, tuning in. And um, it's um, really gratifying to see the amount of people that do listen to this podcast and um, give us fantastic feedback about it. And um, David, look after yourself. Giles, I think we should also give a shout out to all our great guests uh, that we've had recently. Uh, we'll, we'll do that again later on, but uh, you know, uh, we 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 owe them at this huge debt of gratitude that they come on and uh, share. Uh, there's fantastic expertise with our listeners, so that's terrific too. It is terrific, and one day we should work out how to sort of um, actually record the post-recording, the, the, the post-interview discussion, because that's sometimes even more interesting. But um, there you go. That's the uh, that's the that's that's what, that's what happens in journalism and, and interviewing. Anyway, um, thank you very much, everyone, and we'll talk again next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises the performance of residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy of the future.